I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. This week, Ukraine withstood yet another bombardment of Russian strikes, uh, particularly against its energy infrastructure. We're 10 months into the war. How is Ukraine holding up? And how is the rest of the world viewing, and how should we review and view this conflict? Uh, help us, helping us break all of that down, Ishan Theror, a columnist on the Foreign Desk of the Washington Post, author of today's Worldview newsletter and column. And uh, Ishan, thanks so much for joining us. Love the piece on Ukraine's resilience, really setting the global standard. Uh, we are 10 months into this war now of Russia invading the sovereign space of Ukraine, uh, what are we seeing? What have we learned? Uh, what is it that Ukraine is showing the rest of the world? Well, yeah, thanks for having me. And, and as you said, we are 10 months into uh, an astonishing uh, Russian invasion that took some folks by surprise. I would say I was among the, the D.C. policy establishment who wasn't expecting this to happen 10 months ago. And I think we also weren't expecting the Ukrainians uh, 10 months ago to be able to put up the fight that they did. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the first few weeks, we, there was this assumption that uh, Zelensky could fall, Zelensky could even get killed. There was an assumption that uh, uh, it was only a matter of time before the we would have to accept some kind of Russia-friendly status quo in Ukraine. And all of that has gone out the window. Of course, uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, a sustained and pretty significant uh delivery of aid and help to Ukraine from the West and especially the United States. But it, a lot has to be chalked up to uh, the astonishing bravery and commitment we've seen from Ukrainians themselves in holding the line and pushing back the Russians here and there, in preparing for this invasion, and, and then now uh, taking the fight to the Russians on certain fronts. Uh, we're entering a pretty grim winter, not just in Ukraine, but in much of the world where energy prices are high. But in Ukraine, it's even worse because as you said, the Russians have uh, taken a new tactic, which is, you know, after suffering a bunch of military defeats, they have just decided to target uh, civilian infrastructure, and that includes Ukraine's energy grid. And so there are certain moments in the day when up to 10 million Ukrainians in this country are without electricity. Mm. And they're, they're holding the line still, they're persevering. And um, the Ukrainians, of course, uh, led by uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky, who as we now know, is Time Magazine's Person of the Year, uh, are 
are calling for more help. They, 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 there was a big conference in Paris this week where there's more aid mustered for them. And uh, they're hoping that the West keeps its pipeline of support uh, in the months to come because, of course, this fight is far from over, even though it's, it's taxing Russia as well. Yeah, it, it's so uh, amazing to see that resilience uh, is such a powerful thing. And I want to, just for our listeners, get some perspective. You say that you know over 10 million uh, Ukrainians are without power, so we, we think about that and, and perspective. So that would be like every citizen in the state of Utah and the state of Arizona being without power. Uh, so just think of it in terms of that kind of perspective. And uh, you think of the, we've been having a, a couple of real winter days here the last few days here in the state mm-hmm, of Utah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, imagine going through that uh, without any kind of power. And uh, talk to me just a little bit more uh, in your reporting. You had some uh, beautiful things uh, that Zelensky has echoed, uh, not just to the Ukrainian people. He's clearly been a galvanizing force uh, within uh, Ukraine and, and keeping his mm-hmm. people together but he has also reflected out to the world uh, that this is this is more than just Ukraine. This is about all of us. Well, that's been their line. Look, you know, Zelensky is an interesting figure in and of himself. You know, a year ago this time, he was quite unpopular in Kiev. There were political troubles for his government. Uh, he was seen as a kind of lightweight political figure by a lot of people, both in and outside of Ukraine. And then he's just become this generational figure, this wartime president. Uh, and part of what he's done is really uh, lead a masterclass in, in, in wartime messaging and political communication. And he is perhaps the most famous and most prolific uh, Zoom conferencer in the world. <laughs> he is constantly uh, speaking out uh, to various forums. I've seen him in multiple different conferences, whether it's in a, uh, the Halifax Forum in Canada last month or Davos in May, uh, beam in and have a specific message for that specific audience. And uh, it's been a real PR masterclass by the Ukrainians. And part of their messaging is, as you said, they see themselves uh, manning the ramparts for not just their own nation, but for a sense of the liberal democratic world, a sense of of a world where certain norms prevail, where certain democratic institutions can thrive. And, you know, we can be cynical about what Ukraine was before this war. It was not exactly some liberal democratic paradise. Right. But they truly believe in these aspirations and values, and they see themselves uh, on the ramparts of the struggle again mm-hmm. between you know, democracy and, and autocracy. Yeah. And uh, that's something that's been communicated repeatedly by them, as they also communicate repeatedly that, uh, yeah, we're, we're fighting this war, so please give us more help. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.
Yeah, I love that use of the word ramparts. Uh, I think that is true in terms of how they view themselves. I love the quote from President Zelensky uh, really saying to the rest of the world, uh, if they devour us, the sun in your sky will get dimmer. Uh, I think that is such mm-hmm. an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so help us transition that now just a little bit uh, in terms of what does this mean for a place like Taiwan? That was part of your piece in the Washington Post. Uh, what does this mean? What does what uh, Ukraine has been able to do uh, mean for places like Taiwan? Right. So this is a huge and pretty complex uh, question because – of course, uh, Ukraine to Russia, uh, at least in, in terms of what uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has articulated, is this kind of country that exists in the Kremlin's imagination as, you know, a country that's not legitimate, that should be part of our sphere of influence, if not entirely part of our territory. And the Chinese see Taiwan in a similar fashion. They see Taiwan as a kind of renegade province that should not have its own independent state. Uh, they have no interest in uh, the success of recent decades of Taiwanese democracy. And uh, there is a stated mission by the Chinese leadership uh, that we will have reunification with Taiwan one way or the other. And now the question is, especially because there are very few people in Taiwan who want to be reunified with China, um, what is the the kind of military option that the Chinese may take? There are plenty of people in Washington who fear uh, an imminent Chinese invasion in the next decade uh, and also recognize that uh, they may not be able to support Taiwan the way they've been able to support Ukraine. Taiwan is an island that can be blockaded by the Chinese. It has far fewer means to resist. I mean, there's far fewer means to bog down an invading force in the way that Ukraine, with massive land territory, has bogged down the Russians. Uh, and uh, there is a real fear that um, the precedent set by Russia, that you can, perhaps not successfully, but you can still try, to break the international system and seize another country or, or invade another country uh, is clearly one that's being watched everywhere in the world. Now, the question is, uh, what are the lessons that the Chinese are learning from what the Russians and what Russia has experienced? Are they willing to take the risks of sanctions and international isolation uh, that we've seen inflicted upon Russia? Uh, and then, of course, and I spoke to a Taiwanese uh, top diplomat, you know, what are the Taiwanese learning? And one of the things that they told me was, yes, we have to reform our military. We have to make sure we are ready to raise the costs for the Chinese if they try a maritime invasion. But the most important thing that we're seeing is the sheer spirit and courage and resilience of the Ukrainian people. And we have to make sure we are similarly positioned and similarly ready to have that kind of show of courage. Mm -hmm. So important. And finally, real quickly, Ishan, before I let you go, uh, anything else you're watching, one thing you're watching uh, in the coming months relating to Ukraine and Russia, uh, especially as we continue through this uh, very crucial and very tough winter? Right. Well, I mean, absolutely, that, that is the main thing, to see how what the toll of the winter brings. Uh, there's a sense that the fighting will bog down a little bit in the wintertime, given the weather and given uh, its effect on, on ground maneuvering. But uh, the war is still very much in full motion. Uh, there's a sophisticated drone war happening up in the skies between both sides. Uh, the question is, and, and there's the one thing that all your listeners should think about is that it's not as if people want the war to keep on going on. People, the Biden administration and many European partners are behind the scenes quietly pushing towards some kind of scenario where there is diplomacy, but we're just not there yet. We're not there yet because the Russians have not shown any interest in actual good faith negotiations. And the Ukrainians, of course, do not want to meet the Russians on any terms that are 
more favorable to Moscow than to them. So the war is grinding on, and it's a question of sticking it out. And that also means it's a question of Europeans and Americans sticking it out with aid and support. Ishan Tharoor, columnist on the Foreign Desk of the Washington Post. He's the author of the Today's Worldview newsletter and column. That's always worth checking out. Uh, Ishan, always appreciate your perspective and insight uh, on this area of the world. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we'll step aside for one last commercial break. When we come back, some final thoughts. It is Bill of Rights Day. Why does that matter? And what do you got to do about it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.